Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. So I'm about 20 minutes outside of Saskatoon. I just got to this site where these kids are having their summer camp. And I just saw a red-winged blackbird, and I can see some native goldenrod, and that might be some sage. It's beautiful today. The sun is shining, although it's a bit of a hazy day here. I'm Leisha Grabinski sitting in for Laura Lynch this week, and you are listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. As usual, our show this week is packed with them, from fireproof houses to solar-powered tractors. But after a week of extreme weather and heat across the planet, I want to start the show with a moment in the woods, with the simplest, but maybe the deepest, reason for caring about the Earth. So come with me, we're on a path that leads us to a cluster of trees protecting us from the hot prairie sun and the wind. This is Timbernook, a summer camp where kids are immersed in nature. I think in order to be connected, to want to care for the planet, you have to have that awe and that wonder and to see the beauty around you and to stop and smell the flowers and and to ask questions um, about like our impact in the woods and, and talking to the kids about that, about, you know, picking one flower and leaving five for the bees. That's Shelley Betker. She runs Timbernook with her sister. You have to have joyful um, connections with the environment around us and seeing them, how a wonder of a ladybug, a butterfly is so magical, it's ever-changing. Every single time we come into the woods, we're discovering something new. And so today, the kids are discovering so much about squirrels. There are a few right here with us scampering around the kids. And it's that connection with nature that makes these kids want to take care of the planet. Be kind to nature. Because then if there's no water, it would become toxic. Water. The water would become toxic. Yeah. Then I can go swimming out cry. Don't pull leaves off trees. Why not? The trees would die. I like my big playground. Always take care of my big playground. Because if you don't take care of the planet, you won't have all the things that you need to live. These kids are in tune with their environment, but it also means they're paying attention when we aren't taking care of it. I mentioned the haze that's hovering over us today. Like so many parts of the country, we've breathed a fair bit of smoke this summer from grass and wildfires here in Saskatchewan. Timbernook has had to cancel more than once. We have lots of dialogue about it, and it's always so interesting that they compare it to their backyard campfire, right? Like, that's their connection that they have, and and so just trying to get them to understand that this isn't a backyard campfire, right? This is this is something that's out of control and that people are working really hard to get ahead of and um, get under control. So I think knowledge is power, just like with anything, and education is so important. 
I feel like I could stay here all day with these kids, and I hope you have some moments of joyful connection to nature this summer, too. Okay, Alicia, I'm sorry, but I'm going to pull you away from the woods now. Okay. Hi, Rachel. Fine. I'm back in studio, and producer Rachel Sanders is with me. But don't worry, we're not going that far. Our next story starts in Saskatchewan, and we're still talking about young people, education, and wildfires. Any squirrels? Oh, you're just going to have to wait to find out. (laughs) Now, Alicia, I know you've been doing a lot of stories about the fires in Saskatchewan, and I want to tell you about one gathering in Prince Albert for evacuees from the DeChambeau Lake Fire. Now picture this, big tents set up in a field, huge trays of fish and meat, and big pots of vegetables simmering over a fire. We were serving fish, and there was caribou, there was moose meat. Very First Nation-led, solving a, a problem that we see on the ground, and, and that's been huge. Oh my goodness, fish, caribou, and moose meat? This does not sound like your average evacuation reception centre. Oh, I know, it doesn't, right? That's Michelle Vandevoort speaking. She's from the Muscaday First Nation, and you heard her mention a problem that they see on the ground. That problem is the ways that evacuations affect Indigenous people. And that traditional cultural camp, it's an example of Indigenous-led evacuation practices. And that's what I'm here to chat with you about today, a program that's spreading the word about these practices and helping Indigenous young people become leaders when climate emergencies strike. So tell me more about this program. It's called Preparing Our Home. I'm going to introduce you to a few people involved in it. Michelle Vandevoort, who we just heard from, is a mentor in the program. She's also a firefighter and president of the National Indigenous Fire Safety Council. And she's on a mission to advocate for Indigenous knowledge to be included in government decisions around disasters. Making sure that our First Nations people, especially women, are able to be heard in those spaces, having people acknowledge all of the traditional knowledge that we hold on reserve when it comes to wildland and structural firefighting. So that camp for evacuees then from DeChambeau Lake, is that the kind of traditional knowledge that she's talking about? Exactly. So when people from remote Indigenous communities have to evacuate from their homes, one of the problems is that they often have to eat fast food. And Michelle says a lot of people aren't used to eating food like that. It's not good for people's health, especially when they're diabetic or have other health issues. So Michelle says a cultural camp with traditional food is so helpful to people going through the trauma of having to leave home after a disaster. Yeah, and there have been a lot of evacuations of First Nations communities in Saskatchewan this year. DeChambeau Lake, of course, but also people from the Métis community of Isle Lacrosse. They were forced from their homes due to wildfire smoke, and this happened more than once for them. Also, people who live in Laloche and the nearby Clearwater River Dene Nation were also forced from their homes due to smoke. Yeah, we know that Indigenous communities are disproportionately affected by wildfire, as well as by other climate impacts like flooding, which is why preparing our home's work is so urgent. Let's hear from another one of the mentors in the program. Darlene Yellow Old Woman Monroe is a co-founder of Preparing Our Home. She's an elder and a member of the Siksika Nation in Alberta. That's about an hour's drive east of Calgary. And some of our listeners will know that in 2013, Calgary and other parts of southern Alberta experienced extreme flooding, which has been linked to climate change. 
Darlene's nation was also devastated by that flooding. So people moved to higher ground when the water came, but it's a large reserve and people were quite spread out. So Darlene thought about what her community needed during that time, and she took a new approach to supporting the evacuees. The model is called the Dancing Deer Disaster Recovery Centre. Here's what happened. It was chaos, and um, we had so many organizations coming in to help us, you know, which was needed. But we actually wanted to start dealing with the community. So what I did was I recruited a nurse, a social worker, community health, and youth to assist us with visiting the evacuees. The reason I did that is because our reserve is large. It's 60 miles wide and 40 miles in length. So even to travel, for evacuees to travel was an issue. So it was easier for us to go, the youth to go out and meet with evacuees, find out what they needed, bring food, bring water, blankets, tents to them. The Dancing Deer Disaster Recovery Center, the name was gifted by an elder. Hmm, And what a beautiful name to be gifted. So she went out to her community to actually meet evacuees who were staying in temporary sites, which does sound less stressful for people than having to travel to get to a central evacuation center for support with things like healthcare. That's right. Yeah, it's another example of an Indigenous-led style of evacuation, especially when people are out of their homes for years, which happened in this case. Darlene says this is a model that other communities can emulate. And stories like the ones we've just heard are why Darlene and Michelle are involved in preparing our home. They saw a need to do evacuations differently, so they're sharing their knowledge and experiences with other people. Well, I think with preparing our home, there's been a real awareness, education of disasters, evacuations, how to work with your community when those incidents happen. And it's grown with all the other individuals that attend Preparing Our Home, and they learn from our experiences. I'm starting to understand this, you know, to really get the idea here. But can you tell us, you know, why do the people you spoke with say conventional emergency management is unsuitable for some Indigenous communities? Well, I asked another Preparing Our Home co-founder about that. Lily Umagolova is the program's director. She's Bashkir-Canadian. She comes from the Bashkir peoples of the Ural Mountains. That's an area in what's now known as Russia. Lily's an expert in community disaster planning. She's at the University of Saskatchewan. Now, of course, having to leave home in an emergency is traumatizing for anyone. But Lily says for some First Nations people, conventional emergency management practices can make the situation even worse. When an evacuation happens, often it's people you don't know. Uh, They knock on your door, you're grabbed from your home, you're put on a bus, you're put in some institutional setting, like a congregate setting, like a gym with lines and lines of cots. The bright lights are on all the time. So for residential school survivors, it's a traumatic triggering event. It's also not a system fit for single mothers, for example, These environments are not in in any way child-friendly and welcoming, right? So there is a lot there that needs to be changed to make it much more culturally safe. Yeah, I can picture exactly what she's describing there because evacuees who have had to come to Saskatoon, they've always had to stay in a large gymnasium in the north end of our city. It's actually our big soccer centre. Uh, We heard a few years ago, too, about families being separated during evacuations and they were sent to different locations, which 
I think also would add to the trauma of all of this. So evacuations here have been far from ideal. But this year, there were some changes and some evacuees were actually put in hotels to help give them more privacy. Right. Lily told me there are actually new initiatives in northern Ontario starting up where First Nations are starting to host evacuees from other nations. So that's a big step forward for Indigenous-led evacuations. But even when you think about the usual messaging around emergency preparedness, she says those messages aren't suitable for many Indigenous communities. You know, uh, the kind of conventional messages, know your risk, have a kit, (laughs) It's a lot of people cannot afford a kit, right? A lot of the system is designed around property-owning, middle-class, insured, vehicle-owning, body-abled Canadians, right, that can pack up and leave and have a kit and come back and go stay at a hotel and come back. There is this silent majority that actually falls outside of those spaces, and that's where a lot of preparedness efforts should be directed to. Hmm. Yeah, I can see what she's saying. We tend to picture people piling into a vehicle to drive away from the hazard. But I know in northern Saskatchewan, most people in the community need to be bussed out. Right. So instead of that individualistic model, preparing our home helps First Nations plan for emergencies in a community-minded way. It also trains Indigenous youth to become leaders during emergencies And it advocates nationally to make sure Indigenous people are included in government discussions about emergency policies. So we've heard a few examples, but maybe let's take a step back here. Can you walk me through how the program works? Yes, there's a national gathering once a year. It happens here in B.C. in a town in the Okanagan called Asuyas. Young people come here from across the country. Here's Lily. So it's a place where elders and youth and seasoned professionals come together for a week to cook together, to learn from each other, to laugh together, to cry together. And we really begin with understanding why communities are in such disproportionate amount of risk. So you begin with the Indian Act and the forced displacement that many communities have went through. Really, though, it's really the space of solutions. So from Nochalnuth communities out west to Mi'kmaq communities out east, people from across Turtle Island gather together to really focus on what can be done in communities. And what we often hear is the youth say that, you know, it's just amazing to know that you're not alone uh, facing these issues. And then the youth go back home to put what they've learned into practice in whatever way works best for their communities. Like it's a scavenger hunt or it's a big session at the school gym and so on and so forth. So it really doesn't have to be boring. It can be a lot of fun, uh, emergency preparedness. I love that. So it can be fun. What other kinds of workshops are happening in communities? Well, do you remember Darlene, the elder from Alberta we heard from earlier? She's been teaching about traditional ways of gathering and preparing food. If you have a disaster and you don't have access to go into a town or grocery store, then you have to be prepared. So we did a dry meat session to teach the younger people how they can survive by hunting and drying meat. We made uh, two big smokers, and then they got to take it home when they were done. I guess they really enjoyed it. We brought in some elders that know how to cut meat. Then we do our smoking and wait and (laughs) wait and wait. Uh, But in the meantime, we talk about other things that the youth may have issues with so that as elders, we're there to help them. So I I like working with the youth, but uh, sometimes they're really high high energy. (laughs) But we have lots of fun. 
That sounds really wonderful. Did you talk to any of the youth who've been through the program? I did. Brent Boisineau is a member of Metogamy First Nation in Ontario. He's 24 years old. And he's learned a lot from his mom, Eileen, who's been doing emergency preparedness for years, but he's also been to the Preparing Our Home gathering. You learn so much from other people that are there as well. Just basically learning what other kind of disasters and uh, emergencies that other First Nations are faced with outside of Ontario and building that relationship to see, you know, if they're doing this for their evacuations or if they're doing that for their disasters, what can we take from them and what can we give to them as well? So this year, Brent started a job where he uses all of these things he's learned. He's the emergency management coordinator for his nation. And this is a big success story. I heard from multiple people that this is a position that every First Nation needs. These roles are for people who are part of the community and know what they need to stay safe. Yeah, makes sense. So Brent talks about learning from other communities, but I'm sure it's not just communities that need to learn from each other. What does the federal government need to learn from communities about what's needed? Yeah, well, Canada's Auditor General, Karen Hogan, put out a report last fall that highlights a lot of these problems that we've been talking about. It states very clearly that the federal government is failing to provide the support that First Nations need. It also says many of these issues were identified a decade ago. Now, Lily says there has been some progress. She says that's because Indigenous people have pushed for change. And Preparing Our Home is mainly funded through a grant from Indigenous Services Canada. But Lily and Michelle and the Auditor General say the government needs to fund other things as well. Here's Lily. Unfortunately, there has been report after report after report, and uh, the change is not fast enough. What the reports say is that we are addicted to response. Addicted to response? Rachel, what, what does that mean? So the Auditor General's report says we need to prepare and prevent as much as respond and recover. But right now, the federal government spends three and a half times more money on responding and recovering after disasters happen. And more money should be spent trying to prevent damage and loss in the first place? Exactly. So in the Auditor General's report, Indigenous Services Canada says it agrees with this. The department says it funds 196 emergency management coordinator positions in First Nations. Brent's position is one of those. And the department says it plans to fund more of those positions. Indigenous Services Canada tells me that since that report in November, it has made progress on all of the Auditor General's recommendations, and it says it's working with First Nations partners to improve emergency management services. That includes, quote, supporting new First Nations-led service delivery models that reflect community needs and First Nations' inherent right to self-determination. So it sounds like a lot of work still needs to be done, but it also sounds like this program is having a real impact on young people. Yes, let's hear one more time from the Saskatchewan firefighter, Michelle Vandevoord. One particular young person stands out in her mind when she thinks about the effect that preparing our home has. Here in Saskatchewan, I was honoured to take one of our youth from our northern communities, very, very shy girl, her first time flying on her plane. It was her first time leaving the province, which you'll see a lot of our our youth going to this program. It's their first time, sometimes even leaving their traditional land. So the opportunity is huge. 
The young woman's name is Sheena. Michelle said she was so quiet at the gathering, but she listened and learned. And when she got home, she started organizing emergency preparedness workshops for youth in her community, like those scavenger hunts and fun events you heard Lily describe earlier. She also invited Michelle up to her community. I went to the school and did fire prevention. She had the kids doing emergency preparedness kits. Like, you just never know when you reach a youth how far it's going to take them just by hearing and being with everybody from around the country involved in emergency management. So it's more than just a program. I think, is it a lifestyle? (laughs) Is that First Nation emergency management lifestyle? (laughs) (laughs) A First Nations emergency management lifestyle. I like the sounds of that. And you can really hear what a difference this program is making to communities. Thank you for bringing us this story, Rachel. You're welcome, Leisha. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on. Which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is What on Earth. I'm Lee Sugarbinski in for Laura Lynch. Coming up, we're going to meet another climate hero who's built a solar tractor for his farm. Good morning. So this flame is 1,500 degrees Celsius? Yes, that's right. 1,500 degrees Celsius? There's no way I heard that right. Yes, you did. (laughs) If you're wondering who that is, that's Anita Bath, the anchor of CBC Vancouver News at 6. Anita, please tell me that you had a good reason to be near something that hot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely a little bit too close for comfort, but it was safe, I promise. I was actually watching researchers test out some different materials to build fireproof homes. So to be completely fireproof, is that possible? Well, people say it is. And, you know, with wildfires becoming increasingly common, people are really trying to make that happen. So what you just heard was a flame test to compare how flammable a compressed earth block is compared to wood. The wood block caught on fire almost instantly. Now, the earth block is mostly made from dirt. I think that's a good thing, right? Because we have a lot of dirt, don't we? we? Yeah, we sure do. And that's kind of the point. And, you know, it is mixed with a little bit of either cement or a chemical stabilizer and water to bind it together. And then basically a machine uses high pressure to compress it into this dense, solid brick. And it is very solid, let me tell you. Dr. Nitin Kumar from the University of California, Davis, who you heard in that clip earlier, is just one person in a team testing this right now. And California is one of the best places to do it, given how the state has been plagued by devastating wildfires every year. So far, their tests are pretty promising. And are they able to use it in buildings yet? 
Well, they're still testing it, but in theory, they are strong enough to use in a two-story building. The idea is actually 10,000 years old. It's used all over the world, but not in places really like North America or Europe. And these bricks are kind of an updated version. They're windproof, earthquake-proof, fireproof, and affordable because, like you said, we have lots of dirt. What are some other ways to build fire-resistant homes? There are several more. I traveled deep into the mountains of Northern California, where I met the owner and founder of Design Horizons, Vern Sneed. Now, Sneed is building Quonset cabins, or Q cabins for short, basically built to withstand natural hazards like wildfire. He uses steel and other non-combustible materials to build these cabins, like the special framing. So this is called Rock On, and it is a layer of concrete board a layer of insulation, and a layer of concrete board. And so both sides of this are resistant to to fire. I like how he tapped it there. Is he sure, though? Like, how can he be so sure that it works? None of his cabins have been tested in an actual wildfire, but when a 2019 wildfire destroyed all of the homes on the hill that we were on, it left only a Quonset garage standing. I'm talking everything except this garage. So that was basically all the proof that the owners of this land needed. Wow. So the Quonset stayed standing. Is that because of the material that it's made of? Or is the shape of the Quonset, is that part of what makes it fireproof too? Both, really. So the owners called Sneed to design and rebuild a home that would withstand the kind of wildfires that have plagued California for years. A Quonset hut being a curve, when if the fire is approaching the curve, the building is fading away from the fire. So that's a real advantage when the fire is approaching a building, to have the building sloping away. We don't show an overhang. We have an overhang, but it's all steel. So there is no soffit venting, no way for any fire to get into an attic. Anita, I feel like I know Quonsets because even though I grew up in a city, they dot the landscape here in Saskatchewan. They're used to store farm equipment. So this idea of a Quonset as a home definitely (laughs) intrigues me. Are they truly fireproof? If you took a blowtorch to the steel, what would happen? Well, Vern says it wouldn't catch on fire because steel only melts at very high temperatures and doesn't spread flames. I should add, though, that, you know, his Q-huts have other features like special venting so embers don't get in. And like he said, an overhang made entirely of steel as well. So why aren't people in California using more materials like this already? Good question. Sneed says the lack of popularity is complicated. You know, this is Northern California, number one. We have a huge wood industry. Wood is relatively inexpensive here, so it's hard to compete. But at the same time, what is the cost of a house that, you know, that burns down and the rebuilding of it? You know, it's a fair question, but I don't think it's one we want to think about, right? Because you don't want to have to answer that. You hope and pray it's not something you're ever faced with. How do we encourage people to invest in protecting their homes against wildfires, given the amount it will cost you to do it up front? Well, I met someone in Paradise, California, whose story I think helps answer that question. The 2019 Paradise Campfire leveled Gary Ledbetter's home just 10 days after he and his wife moved into it. The Paradise Campfire wrecked our world, burned my house down, took everything from us in a blink of an eye. Oh, that's absolutely devastating. Yeah, and this fire was the deadliest in California's history. More than 19,000 buildings burned. It was really horrible. And only 10% of the homes that were destroyed have actually been rebuilt. Gary's is one of them. But the town has some of the strictest fire codes in all of the U.S. now. After the fire, 
Gary, though, took matters into his own hands and he built a new house that's far beyond what's required by the city or by the state. Gary thinks people need support with doing this and they shouldn't have to do it alone. You know, he added sprinklers on his roof and most people don't have that. He's got way more than six feet between his house and anything combustible and his siding, his stucco siding is far thicker than anyone else has. But he says it's about more than materials. Go for policy. I guarantee you if the government could say, I'll give you this much money if you qualify, to replace these windows, replace the siding, do something to make your house more resilient. That is cheaper than letting it burn and then losing a whole township, losing a whole village, losing tremendous forest land. It's cheaper to, to proactively invest in people's homes. Hmm. So what is the policy like in California? Well, in the Western U.S., the programs are pretty decent. There's a lot of grants for people to fire harden their homes. Um, Government usually provides basically partial or full funding to people. What about Canada? How do we compare? It's not so good. You know, many cities have strengthened building codes for new homes, but most people live in older ones. And Canadian wildland fire ecologist Bob Gray says that's a problem. A couple of years ago, Canadian Forest Service researchers um, were looking at the rebuild in Fort McMurray. And they were looking at just the roof, bay windows, and decking. And it was anywhere from 17 to $26 a square foot. Standard 2,000 square foot house, that's $35,000 to $60,000 just for those three elements. So if, if you really want these communities to survive, then you're going to have to provide some, some financial help. Bob also said that grants and policies like these would really benefit rural and remote communities in particular. So a lot of our rural communities, the, the age demographic is skewed toward older people and they're on a fixed income. So if you're looking at ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 to fire harden your home and your property and it's going to cost $30,000 or you only have $46,000 as a median income, it's not going to happen. So um, you... If you want this to happen, you get people to fire hard in their communities and their homes, you're going to have to help them financially because otherwise they can't afford to do it. So what's at stake here in Canada if we don't start putting money into wildfire proofing our homes at a large scale? Well, for Bob, the stakes are about a lot more than just buildings. We're going to lose communities. Um, And not just lose communities, we'll have a mass casualty event. That's what myself and most of my fire colleagues worry about the most. Years like this... And it's not just people trapped in their homes like in Paradise, California. It's, it's people who get caught evacuating. People get trapped on the way out and you lose lots of people that way. So yeah, if we, if we don't do this in a big way, people will, will die. So that's scary and it, it keeps us up at night. It keeps fire chiefs and mayors up at night. That is scary stuff. And it almost feels ominous considering this year's record-breaking wildfire season. Yeah, and wildfire season is not over yet. It started really early this year. There are going to be a lot of people across Canada needing support, thinking about what the future of their homes and communities look like. Anita, thank you so much for bringing us this story. No problem. Thanks for having me.
We have a lot of sun where I live in Saskatoon. There are no mountains or even many tall skyscrapers to get in the way. So our sky here is expansive. And if you get out of the city and look out to the horizon, you will see farmland. The canola is in bloom right now. And you'll also see tractors. But here's the thing. I don't know anyone who has combined the two, tractors and the power of the sun. But what on earth listener Susan Ear does? Drew created this solar tractor that he uses every year for, uh, for plowing the fields and harvesting the crops. And that solar tractor is why Susan nominated Drew Galeus as a climate hero. We've reached Drew on his farm in Canyon, B.C. Hello. Hello. It's so nice to chat with you. I want to hear all about this tractor. But first, how does it feel to be recognized as a climate champion in your community? Uh, I'm honored and flattered to be uh, nominated. I'm no hero. I think I'm just doing what, what needs to be done. That's a big task ahead of us. And I think we need everybody on board. And I want to do my part. So you have to tell me what you did. You, you, you've got this solar tractor. Tell me about it. What does it look like? The tractor is actually a, an old tractor. It's about probably 70 years old, 60 years old. It's a Massey Harris Pacer. I got it just basically, it was taken all apart. A guy was going to rebuild it, never did, and then he moved, so I got it. And I put it back together and without the engine, and instead of the engine, I put a 10 horsepower electric motor on the tractor and uh, batteries, it's a 48 volt system. I put batteries into it and then I put three solar panels on the roof to charge it. And I put an inverter so we could run 120-volt AC equipment on our farm. So I put the inverter on it, and we use it. And that was about 12 years ago that I built it. So what motivated you to do this? I really, really feel we have to get off fossil fuels. I think fossil fuels are a problem that uh, obviously creating a huge problem. And I wanted to try electrics because I wanted to see how well electrics work and from what we've done electrics are fantastic i don't think we'd ever want to go back to fossil fuels once we get on to electrics on the farm we love it we have solar panels we have an array as well as the ones on the roof of the tractor we have a 32 panel array and basically it's our it's our gas station and electricity is so efficient and when you look at fossil fuels we pollute the air uh, it seemed like kind of a no-brainer to, you know, make an effort to get off fossil fuels. What impact has all of this had on your farm so far? I would say that it's made farming more enjoyable, of course, for me. Everyone on the farm loves the electric tractor. Uh, it's super easy to drive and to use. It also cuts the cost down. You know, there's no smoke. Uh, there's no warm-up time. There's no maintenance. So all in all, it's been a big benefit for the farm. How else are you using solar panels on your farm? Um, well, we our system is about, uh, I think it's 10 kilowatts, and we feed it into the grid. So when we're not using, it feeds back into our uh, grid system. But if we have a power outage, we can then use our panels. And we had a three-day power outage a few years back. And we were able, of course, to keep everything running with the solar panels, which is another big benefit. 
And when you think about it, in the summer when we're farming, we have an abundance of solar energy. We can't use all the solar energy we have. We get a credit for it. And so really for farming, I look at it as a, a win-win. You can't always go out and buy zero emission farm equipment, I don't think, right? It's, it's, not, it's not always easy for farmers to transition. So are you, are you hoping that people will follow your lead and maybe try to create their own? Actually, you know, it's like, I, I believe it's like anything. Where, there, where there's a, a necessity, someone will fill it. And already down in the States, electric tractors are being built. And like I say, once people want to switch and there's a market for it, uh, it'll take a little bit of core. And then there's going to be some problems with, you know, humps to jump over. Uh, but I think we're on, right, on the, uh, right at a change point. And I don't think we'll look back. Drew, what are your final words for people who are thinking of making the switch? I would say electrics are the way to go. We need to electrify. And uh, I, don't, I think we'll, we'll all be happier. Um, it'll, it'll be a better world with electrics, I believe. Drew, so good to talk to you today. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you very much. We have time now for a few more climate stories in the news. The province of Alberta says it's filed criminal charges against a business for providing false information related to carbon offsets. It's believed to be a first in Canada. Since 2007, Alberta has run a mandatory carbon offset system for large emitters. Some scientists have decided humans have made such an impact on the Earth It may be time to enter a new geological era, the Anthropocene. There's a growing number of scientists who say humans have made irreversible changes to the planet. And there is a Canadian connection to this story. Scientists have picked the bottom of Crawford Lake in Ontario as the location of a golden spike. You're probably wondering what that is. A golden spike is used as an ideal marker of where one epoch ends and another begins. So because humans lived along the shores of Crawford Lake hundreds of years ago, scientists can look at sediment on the bottom of the lake to see evidence of human impact. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, you can leave us a review. That is all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Daniel Piper and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer with help this week from Edziu Lovren. Catherine Wolfson and Molly Siegel were our senior producers this week. I am Leisha Grabinski in for Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.